0: Hello, I'm Mark Weaver, President of Mark Weaver and Associates Interior Design. I'd like to invite you to our Instagram live series called Designers at Home. It's every other Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. It's a casual, informative, and exclusive discussion with renowned architects, interior designers, and artists from around the world. This half-hour podcast program is a recording of the live talk addressing all things design and architecture related, along with personal anecdotes and inspiration. Guests have included Emmy-nominated set decorator Peter Gursky, one of America's leading sculptors Sabin Howard, renowned architect and artist Leo Marmel, and art advisor extraordinaire, Barbara Guggenheim. We look forward to you joining us. Thank you.
1: Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Designers at Home. My name is Daryl Wilson, and I will be sitting in for Mark today. Um, Mark and I have been working together for over 20 years, so I'm just happy to have this opportunity to spend some time with you. So today we have a special treat that's both culturally and um, socially interesting um, sort of artifacts and so forth. We're going to be joined uh, by Yus at the, he's a chief curator and director at the Venda Museum uh, here in Culver City. Good morning. So I was just explaining to our viewers that you have very socially and culturally and aesthetically interesting items. Right. So would you tell us a little bit about how the museum got started?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are actually celebrating this year our 20th anniversary. And the museum started uh, actually by the uh, our current director, Justin, <laughs> Justin Temple, who realized in the early 2000s that many people were just throwing out their design objects and objects of everyday life from their socialist experience. And he wanted to make sure that these objects would be stored somewhere in a same way and made accessible to scholars and the interested uh, public at large so that uh, people can still keep telling stories about what's happening at the time. Wonderful. So what do you want to
1: start off showing us? So
2: let's th- with uh, what is more or less the icon of the Wen Museum. We call it our Pink Lenins It's uh, actually a, a mass produced Lenin vest from the mid 1960s, which was spray painted during one of the so-called Monday demonstrations in the city of Lef- Leipzig in Germany, which took place a few weeks before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So this paint piece was used uh, in a demonstration to more or less mock uh, the very bureaucracy and seriousness of state socialism. And how did you guys acquire that? Um, we have actually, we work with a lot of um, uh, people, um, scouts who uh, um, are stationed in Germany or in former Soviet bloc countries, and they point us to interesting materials that we can uh, acquire. So this was through one of our scouts. So
1: but- was it in someone's home or was it in a museum? Where, where, where was
2: it? No, it was actually in, a private, uh, in private hands. And um, yeah, we um, bought it from someone who just had it in his uh, storage space. Okay. It happens. And that is actually quite um, 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 interesting about this museum that so many uh, artifacts we have in the museum come from daily life from people, uh, not from official collections, but uh, really from the center of people's lives. Great. So
1: what's our next thing that Yeah,
2: we'll so let's walk a little bit around the corner and we show you a few highlights of our collection, which we have stored in open storage. So the, the first uh, space here is dedicated to the space race which was such an important uh, aspect of Cold War competition between the West and uh, the Soviet countries. And you see here, the space race from the perspective of the East. So on the left side, there is this uh, plate with a green background and a dog on it. This is Laika, the first dog that was sent into space. That uh, happened before the first human uh, went up. Unfortunately uh, for Laika, she didn't make it back alive. But then you see the little rocket in front of it with the two dog heads. Those are Belka and Strelka, and uh, they were the first dog who came back alive. And actually one of the puppies of Strelka was later given as a state gift by Khrushchev's wife to Jackie Kennedy during the state visit. (laughs) Also maybe interesting are the little models of the Sputnik satellite, the first artificial satellite in space. In 1957, Here, put on a music box, And then if we move a little uh, further. Sorry
1: to interrupt you, but what does that music block play? What's, what's the music?
2: So uh, it actually plays the Internationale, if you open it. Communist song. And um, yeah, you see, there's a lot uh, these uh, space race artifacts that are combined with other things, for instance, on the uh, other side here. We have a bed lamp in the form of a space rocket. So this this was quite common.
1: And you said that these items, some of them were commemorative items. Right. And who, who actually received the commemorative items? Because in the States, a lot of the commemorative items would have been for sale or whatever. So that the general public could have a little piece of that, that experience. So what, what was the case with these items?
2: So, that sometimes happened in special shops in the Soviet Bloc countries, and you could obtain these objects for relatively high prices, especially relative to the income in those countries. But more um, uh, common was that they were actually presented as a kind of um, uh, relation gifts. For instance, if you were uh, a worker who had been part of a certain company for 20 or 25 years, and had a great um, uh, job, uh, did a great job, then you could, as a reward, get one of such pieces. Interesting. I can actually show you some commemorative plates that had the same uh, background. Well, maybe first let's have a quick little look here next door, because here we have something quite special. This is an original pebble or uh, piece of rock from the moon which we obtained through uh, mediation of David Scott. David Scott was the commander of uh, Apollo 15, and by the way, the first man ever to drive on the moon. And every astronaut who uh, collected material on the moon has the right to designate one institution to showcase a piece of the moon. And uh, what is so special about David Scott is that he uh, found it so important that this piece of the, mo- this piece of the moon would be uh, in a context Uh, of the cultural history of the Cold War and not just in a military museum or a technological museum.
1: So is that sort of a marker of we were there first or what? what,
2: Explain the context of
1: having that there.
2: Not not so much we were there first. Actually, David Scott gave a lecture at the Winnie Museum where he said it's not the Americans that uh, uh, went to the moon, it's humanity that went to the moon. And he makes a very strong point in the collaborations between the Soviet cosmonauts and the American astronauts that made it possible for people in general to to get to the moon. <laughs> very good. So shall we have maybe a look at uh, some other items? Certainly, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah walking past some scrapbooks from East Germany and the Soviet Union, and past some sculptures in many different styles from different East Bloc countries. but I wanted to uh, highlight some of our commemorative plates, which is a special collection in the Wendem Museum. We have around 1,200 of these plates. They're quite fascinating because they cover so many aspects of uh, cultural and social life. And some of them are just uh, uh, weird. I'm pointing here to a plate with two soccer players. As you might know, soccer was a game that was invented in the late 19th century. But the soccer players are here uh, represented as in the style of Athenian face painting from the fifth century BC. So those weird little combinations are sometimes to be found here. So we was, also have a beautiful plate yeah go so ahead is that, yeah.
1: that so is that a commemorative plate or was it
2: that a, yeah it's a commemorative plate that again uh, belonged to a sports club in East Germany, and we don't know the history uh, of it in terms of what uh, who received it, but probably it was maybe a soccer player or one of the board members of the soccer club or something like that who could receive a plate like this
1: so these are seem very specialized. Is there was there a, a certain manufacturer or company that produced them, or or, or what's the story behind that?
2: The yeah, so well, for instance, in East Germany, which was uh, very prolific in producing these plates, I think there were twelve different ceramics factories that produced these plates. It was always a combination of uh, just um, um, ceramics uh, for use in the kitchen and these more uh, decorative plates that were um, typically hang uh, against the wall. And um, yeah, you can show uh, you could show off with them. One great example is actually the white and blue plate next to it, uh, which is hand painted. It's a piece of Meissen porcelain. Meissen was a famous porcelain, and still is, famous uh, porcelain factory near, near Dresden in Germany. And this is a scene of the storming of the Winter Palace which is now the Hermitage Museum in Saint Petersburg during the Russian Revolution. And what is so interesting uh, about it is that this scene was taken from a film still of Eisenstein's movie, October in 1927 that commemorates the Russian Revolution. And you can see how beautifully the white ground of the plate worked as a snow landscape here.
1: And who would have received that plate since it's...
2: Literally no idea.
1: Okay.
2: I do know it's there different are few versions of these plates. We have three of them, and I know of two other plates that are in other collections. So it was copied, always hand painted, but we don't know who, who received these plates. Okay,
1: great. Yeah. And what about that plate with sort of peeking in the corner with the, the, the skier on it?
2: Oh yeah, that's another sports okay. plate. Uh, it says uh, Aufbau Jünenbach, which is a little town in East Germany. And again, just like the soccer plate, this was a typical plate um, that could be uh, donated to uh, someone who was very active in a sports organization, in, in this case with the winter sports. Interestingly, we also have a large collection of uh, flags uh, that belong to those sports clubs or Agricultural communities or factories, etc., with very comparable scenes on them.
1: Interesting,
2: right? So maybe shall we have a look at our design objects on the other side of the museum? That would
1: think? be fantastic.
2: Perfect. Then we will walk uh, along, and uh, while we are walking, you will get a sneak peek into our current exhibition which is, um, uh, the, the title is Deconstructing Ideology, and it is an exhibition about the cultural revolution in China, the years 1966 to 1976. Mm-hmm. And uh, this um, uh, exhibition starts with a section on contemporary art, that is where we are now. will also a little look into the rest of the space so that you get an idea. You see a large rest of Mao there, you know then we are going to blow this very interesting dress here, which is actually uh, designed by Viviana Tan, who is a Hong Kong-based clothing designer, and she took a very famous portrait uh, of Mao as a starting point, the portrait you might actually know because it was uh, um, always placed uh, centrally in men. Square of Heavenly Bees in Beijing, but here she uh, more or less photoshopped the image in different um, ways, so there is one Mao with a bee on his nose, there's a Mao in pigtails, there's Mao as a cleric over here, a Mao in sunglasses, which is um, first of all, of course, a way of making fun of this image that was actually the most copied image in world history, there are many billion copies of it, but it's also a um, comment on the fact that Mao was supposed to be responsible for everything going on in China. So he, is, he has many different faces. So now, is that a, a, a single artifact, or
1: was that put into production?
2: No, this is actually a single artifact. Uh, uh, it's, it, it's part of the museum, we have it on loan. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's
1: very fascinating, particularly the multiple images of Mao and how they, it really sort of plays with that, that idea that you spoke of, of Mao being everything.
2: Right, 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 yeah. Yep, this is... Fascinating.
1: Well, fascinating really nice and a little people. odd, but fascinating.
2: Because a, okay, thank you, thank you, we're walking along now and go to the other side of the building. You see our new acquisitions wall on the right. You're passing a also very fascinating section here on spy and surveillance equipment, including training materials for the border guards at Checkpoint Charlie, uh, the border crossing between East and West Berlin, where they developed their own analog method of facial recognition. And then we get uh, at the section here of design objects. And I think uh, what is so um, gripping about this collection of design objects is that you can see um, how similar they are to examples from the United States or Western Europe from about the same time. People always think uh, about art and design in Eastern Europe as being, very literal uh, socialist realism, things like that. But actually, if you look at those objects, you see that they are quite modern. And there's a reason for that, because uh, in both the Soviet Union and in East Germany, there were art schools where this modernist tradition was never lost.
1: Right, but let's let's talk about these objects for a second, because sure. you know I could see those popping up in Palm Springs or wherever. How would one distinguish those objects from something that were that was made in the United States?
2: Uh, well, actually, that's a very hard question. And the reason why it is hard is that there was actually a lot of exchange between the East and the West in terms of design. There were international design fairs. There were a lot of magazines that were accessible in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. So there was a direct inspiration. and if you would uh, point me to one of these uh, uh, faces, for instance, the orange pointy one in the back, which is from Hungary. If I didn't know, I would not know that this was not, for instance, a German or a Belgian uh, design.
1: Interesting. So, and then who actually, because I, I grew up with some of this stuff in my home, but right. you know, so they were everyday objects. Um, Who had access to these objects in the Soviet bloc countries?
2: Yeah, so um, that's a great uh, question. Actually, I think more people had access than you would maybe expect. They were not uh, really uh, cheap, these objects, but also people didn't have that much uh, money to spend on uh, luxury goods. So uh, there were actually a lot of households that could afford to acquire some of these objects, and I have uh, actually been in East Germany before the fall of the uh, uh, Berlin Wall, also in Czechoslovakia, and I saw these kinds of objects in many of the houses where I visited.
1: Interesting, because I, I guess I, you know there's always this notion in the states that you know it was a very gray, at least my perspective was that. You know, there was very simple, you know, basic stuff, almost like military green kind of experience. But this yeah. seems to point to a very different experience in terms of the the aesthetics that seem to be seem to have been somewhat global.
2: You know, that's a great point. And actually, uh, by way of a small anecdote, I once um, at a group tour at the museum. And uh, someone got a little bit angry with me because she said, you were showing off uh, East Germany or Eastern Europe here as though it was so colorful, but you were wrong. It was a horrible society and everything was gray. But uh, those are two elements of the same history. There was a lot of grayness and there was a lot of political oppression, et cetera. but there was also creativity. And I think it's very important to realize that under Whatever political circumstances, people are always eager to express themselves creatively, give meaning to their lives, and that is why you also have beautiful objects in those countries. So, and, and then let's talk
1: again. It's it's access and who had access to these. You know, the commemorative plates you said were usually given by a company or or an organization to honor work or something. It, yeah. How 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 would the average person, or would the average person have been able to
2: afford these? Uh, You mean now these uh, design objects? The design objects, yes. Yeah, again, I mean, uh, uh, there was a large interest in art and design in uh, Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union also maybe um, partly because there was not that much uh, else uh, to spend your money on, but also I think because especially in a situation uh, with an authoritarian political regime, people re- really crave art and crave beautiful things. And um, since they were around and they were not excessively expensive, people saved money to buy them. I think Very that's the basic story, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, just to give a few other examples, you see the kitty table here in black and white said, which we combined with a little uh, small vase uh, also in black and white. They, it looks like they belong together, but actually the kippi table is from East Germany and the vase is from uh, Hungary in this case, but we thought it was a good idea to put them together. And these items, and,
1: uh, what was it, was it, were they mass produced or were they more sort of artisan bespoke kind of items?
2: No, they were more mass produced, I would say. Um, uh, It's very easy still to obtain them. For instance, if you look on eBay or so, uh, you can regularly find uh, not necessarily some uh, uh, one so nice as this one. But things like this, this this was actually the plant stand, this little table. So uh, the idea was to have some flowers on it. But um, yeah, they were uh, not uncommon, I would say. Okay, interesting. Yeah. maybe another special object to uh, point to is the green uh, glazed uh, ceramic here, which is again a Hungarian piece. It's uh, actually a sculpture called Mother and Child on a Bench, and it is from um, a ceramics uh, factory in Pecs in Hungary called, uh, uh, called Solnai, And Tsolna was. And the center of ceramics production in Hungary, like Meissen was a center in East Germany. And this glaze is very specific for that uh, factory. It's a secret recipe that they developed in the late 19th century and are still using for their sculptures and ceramics.
1: And is this, was this a mass produced piece or was this a, a, a more of a sculpture?
2: No, it's more of a sculpture. So uh, it's a one-off. And we also have in the same style uh, serial Lenin uh, sculptures, but uh, I think it's very interesting that one and the same factory both produced these uh, communist uh, leaders and then these more abstract sculptures that go back stylistically to the early 20th century.
1: Interesting. So, I mean, do you have any examples of These seem very high design items. Right. Um, The, so, are there other example, so if this is the the sort of special stuff, are there other, were there other things that were simpler, that were more truly everyday, or or were these the everyday items?
2: Well, of course there were uh, everyday items in the sense of, utensils and uh, plates you use uh, um, for breakfast and things like that. And they were absolutely mass produced. Uh, we also have a collection of those objects, although they are currently not on view. Okay. These are, as you mentioned, somewhat higher up design objects. But again, I think they were not too uh, exceptional. And uh, there were a lot of them actually. Yeah.
1: And so were there stores, shops, how do, how would one acquire those?
2: Yeah, simply by uh, through shops. There were shops where you could buy them. And uh, also um, um, actually they became more and more readily accessible in the 1970s and ni- especially 1980s towards uh, the end of uh, state socialism. Uh, and you, uh, and that goes together with the tendency uh, you see in art that um, the secret services and the governments uh, release um, the strictness of uh, censorship. So artists are more free to do whatever they like, including sometimes slightly um, countercultural and subversive uh, uh, things. We have a large collection of those uh, in the museum as well. And uh, that went hand in hand with these kind of uh, special design objects becoming more easily available. So tell us, tell, tell
1: us, because you've mentioned several things, tell us a little bit about what the museum encompasses. What, you know, because you have some contemporary things, you have some historical things, we have, you have right. political things. It seems like the museum has a, a multitude of
2: different aspects that one could spend learning about. Now that's absolutely true. So the core of the museum, the collection, it's about the Cold War period and covers. Um, it used to cover the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, but um, two years ago we expanded the geographical scope uh, to include socialist countries worldwide, which is why we have now our first China exhibition. And April 1st we will open our first Vietnam exhibition, and it is indeed a combination of objects from everyday life. And we have a film archive, we have artwork, both official artwork and countercultural artwork. we have historical witness interviews, all kinds of things to be able to combine uh, them into new perspectives about uh, the past so that is important uh, for us we always want to make um, meaningful connections between the past and the present and make it you alive. mentioned that there was a lecture I, I,
1: Forgive me, I've forgotten the name of the guy who get with the the moon rock. So, do you also have a lecture
2: series, or is it is that? Yeah, no, absolutely. We have uh, actually a very busy uh, lecture and panel discussion series that, in part, um, are organized in conjunction with our exhibition. So, we had a whole series of talks and discussions about China during and after the Cultural Revolution. But also in conjunction with our other current exhibition, which is about East uh, German male art. So we had a panel discussion about the history of male art. And then we have uh, an online uh, discussion series with our student council uh, about um, uh, the political aspects of contemporary art. So we really try to um, bridge um, many uh, or cover a lot of terrain and uh, cover a lot of topics.
0: Great,
1: great. So we're coming to the end of our time. I want to thank you for showing us here at the museum. Um, It's very, very fascinating. Could you
2: tell us, give us an idea, what are the hours? When are you open? Sure. So we're open Friday through Sunday at 10 a.m. to 5 p.m.
1: And is there are reservations necessary or
2: no? You can come uh, uh, as you like. Uh, the, uh, it's it's free. You can always come. And also, we make a point that uh, all our programs on site are always free. On site, right. and online, I should say, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. wonderful. So thank you again. Um, thank you, all the viewers, and please join us for our next uh, edition of designers at home. I believe Mark will be back. Um, I will be making guest appearances now and then. But again, thank you. This has been wonderful. Uh, everyone have a great day.
2: Well, thank you so much for having us. I hope to see you back in Culver City at our museum. I hope
1: to be there. Okay, great, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Designers at Home. Follow us on Instagram at Mark Weaver and Associates to listen to live or subscribe to this podcast. If you found this podcast valuable and insightful, share it with your friends, comment, and subscribe. We are also on YouTube at Mark Weaver and Associates. Thank you.